This week, on the sidetrack, we'll talk about the iconic 1958 film noir classic, Touch of Evil, written and directed by none other than Orson Welles. But commenting on the film, an icon all unto himself, performer, director, and producer, Frank Oz. That's this week on the sidetrack. Welcome back, folks. It's me, your host, Paul Davidson, with yet another episode, and oh, what an episode it is. I'm excited that we have Frank Oz joining us today. Uh, you know, it's funny, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but there was a time in my Hollywood past where I worked at the Henson Company. I never met Frank. I never had the opportunity to work with him, speak to him, even walk behind him in his shadow. But he was a looming figure in the, the hallowed halls of the Henson Company. Even after Jim Henson's death, he represented, you know, a creative partner to Jim and was integral in developing the world of the Muppets and so many iconic characters that grew out of that partnership. Now, depending on when you grew up, you hear Frank's name and you think of different things. The Muppets, perhaps. Perhaps you're a Star Wars fan, and um, his performance as Yoda is something that is, is an iconic performance and character that has, <laughs> I mean, come on, like just the, the way in which Yoda speaks, um, the cadence is such a pop culture, um, it's a pop culture meme at the end of the day, was something that Frank developed, created, and nurtured through that experience. Those are two significant and iconic uh, impacts, influences that he's had on pop culture uh, in, God, it's almost half a century of his time working in the industry. But for me, you know, I think that he sometimes is not recognized for decades of really amazing film work as a director, as a producer. And so my hope today on this particular episode is that we can, we'll touch on the beginnings, but I really am curious to understand how somebody who is a, known for a, being a performer, a puppeteer, transforms himself into an A-list director in Hollywood. That is, um, for me, top of mind. But we'll also talk about the movie that impacted him the most, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, which has its own storied past and quite a quite a dramatic story behind the scenes of how that film came to be. So not only will we talk to Frank about why that movie, why that is has impacted him so much, how it's impacted his career and the way in which he, he approaches film and directing. Um, and then, but then on top of that, we will uh, give you guys the opportunity to listen to a feature-length audio commentary by Frank Haas of Orson Welles' film noir classic. So hang tight, don't go anywhere, and uh, here we go with our interview with Frank Oz on the sidetrack. So here we are with the legendary Frank Oz. Frank, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. I would be, people would call me a hack if I didn't at least refer to, because I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, in the, I, I sort of say in the opening of the this episode, you've 
I haven't calculated it, but I have to believe that 50% of the time when people talk to you, it's about the Muppets, it's about Yoda, it's about Star Wars. These are iconic characters you created, you developed. They've had an, an immeasurable impact on people worldwide. Um, and so um, I just want to, and you know, disclaimer I said in the opening too, while you and I never met, I worked at the Henson Company back in my earlier in my years in Hollywood. So you were, you as a performer and a creative uh, force were always a significant, um, you were just held at a, at a very high, high place uh, in high regard because of all that you brought to those, those characters. So I, I want to say that, but then I want to kind of put it to the side because from, from my perspective, I think there's a whole chapter of your career that when people say your name, I think 50% of those people go right to the things I just mentioned without being well, aware. I don't, I don't think so. I, I think probably about 80%. 80%. I mean, without being yeah. aware of the, the amazing films that you helmed and were creatively involved in um, for some time. I mean, what's impressive is we're talking about over, over half a century of, of time here that you've been creating, you've been bringing, you know, telling stories. And that's the, so I want to talk about that part of, of your, your life and then what you're doing now. But one of the things to me is always so interesting is starting at the beginning. And when I've done my research and you'll tell me how true the internet is with respect to this research, before you're even a zygote, (laughs) before you're even, you know, created your parents in Europe are, is this true? They're fi- they fought the Nazis with the Dutch brigades. Is this what is what's well, going say, on? My, my my mother didn't. My father did. My father was with the Dutch brigades, and uh, my uh, they actually were in. Uh, they lived in Antwerp, Belgium. My father was Dutch. My mother was Flemish. And prior to our births, uh, my my siblings' births and I, um, they uh, knew the Nazis were coming. My father was very clever that way, and he uh, he. Uh, he and my mom escaped. However, they didn't take the refugee route, which is on the road. Yeah. They had, they had, um, they had belonged to a, kind of a youth group, uh, kind of a Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts thing, and they had camped all over. So they knew that area uh, in France, especially. Wow. Uh, and so they went in that direction, and they actually slept in haystacks and barns and things, wow. and and they uh, escaped all the way down to Morocco. Oh my gosh. Uh, and then, uh, and then my dad uh, put, you know, it's all a very long story, but I'm making it short. My dad put my mom on the boat to England. He couldn't get on, uh, and uh, she uh, had my brother in Wolverhampton, and then I was born in Hereford, England. Uh, my father uh, came back. Uh, there's so many stories. I'm not going to get into it. Yeah, yeah. My father came back uh, uh, to London, and then he had to go back. Uh, to uh, the Dutch brigades and, and uh, you know, fight the Nazis. And, I mean, that's its own... Is, is that a story that you ever in your life has said to yourself, this is this is a story I want to tell through, you know, through media? Or is this just, this is my history, keep that, keep that to myself? I keep it to myself because I think, uh, you know, when I've been offered scripts uh, and they're about people... Um, I, I always ask how true it is. Right. And when it's not true or any part of it's not true, I say, I'm not doing it. I mean, right. You know, so I wouldn't know what is really true and what's not true. However, when I was in my twenties, I left 
Oakland, California when I was 19. Yeah. And when I, I, I came back several times to visit in my early twenties, of course, a couple of times a year. And one of the times, uh, in my early mid twenties, uh, I brought one of the first Sony cameras, uh, video cameras, black and white. Oh, wow. And it, with the battery pack that was huge and I had slung <laughs> across my, my shoulder. Yeah. And, uh, the intent was to, uh, get a history of my parents. So I have about 10 hours of history wow. of my parents and my brother and my sister from 50 years ago. That's amazing. And so, so they, they, everybody gets their finds their way to England. Do your parents, is puppeteer, they were both puppeteers at, at this point. Or is this something that comes out of finding a new uh, career, a new way forward to support the family? Was this something that existed no, before? No. The puppeteering was never money-making. It was a hobby for them. Okay. Um, they actually, I don't really, I know that um, my father would uh, make the characters, the puppets, uh, with sometimes with the help of his, of his father, uh, in carving, and my mother would, uh, she was a, a Hutkache seamstress, so she learned uh, that in Belgium, and so she would clothe the puppets, but when they came, so I don't actually know, I know they did shows, that's about all I know. Yeah. When they came to the United States, they really didn't do any shows at all. It became more of a social uh, thing and a, and a su support of, of what they thought was, you know, was an important art, so. Yeah. Well, and, and, it, it, it was more of a hobby. Well, so when, when you're a teenager then, so you're growing up in Oakland and you start to get involved in the, the world of puppeteering, is you've, you've said in interviews before, like you wanted to be a journalist. You wanted to tell stories from your perspective. You, you were less interested in, you know, servicing somebody else's story, but rather you wanted to kind of be the, you know, a director, like the person um, telling that story and driving it. Um, mm -hmm. What was the motivation then for getting involved with puppeteering as a teenager? Is it a means to an end of a larger strategy for you? How do you how did you think about that? Well, I, I've said this before, and again, I'm I'm looking back and uh, after many years and realizing it. Although at the time I didn't realize it. Yeah. That um, first of all, when I was you know nine, ten, or such, I'd I'd make these robots out of boxes and such. So I had some. Uh, I, I guess I had some sort of excitement in creating something, but really uh, I had very low self-esteem as a kid. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, the uh, puppets were, uh, uh, first of all, it was, it was exciting that I could express myself, yeah. but I didn't have to take a chance. Right. I was hiding behind the puppets. So I'm, I'm going to get a little, a little scientific or philosophical. Um, the concept of, so when I think about all the, when I talk to creative people and every, every director, every writer, whatever it may be, if they're going to spend years of their life focused on bringing a story to the screen, something about that story needs to impact them in a personal way. And when you think about, I, you like think about the tab, the concept of the tabula rasa, like we're born and the experiences that we come in contact with impart um, memories, um, push us towards certain, you know, interests. So the question for you is, I mean, you talk about being a kid who, um, wasn't necessarily as confident as, you know, you would hope to be. Are, are there elements and events and milestones as you're growing up, as you're a teenager, that as you got into this, this chapter of your life where you're reading scripts, deciding what to direct, 
that the chi- the events of your childhood and how you felt impacted the types of stories and the types of characters that you gravitated towards? I would think so, uh, but uh, not consciously. Yeah. Um, I, I would I would think that there's got to be some part of uh, 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 the core of me, which has not changed since I've been younger. Yeah. Um, that that has to speak to it, but uh, I I've not been aware of it. I don't think of scripts intellectually like that. Right. So, uh, but I'm sure I'm sure that's the case. Yeah. I mean, when you when you get a script, when somebody sends you a script, what are you what are you looking for? What are you looking to feel? What are you looking intellectually looking for? that makes you say, I want to spend two to three years of my life working on this? Uh, if it if it makes my heart beat faster, if it makes me laugh out loud, or if it makes me, uh, if it if I can't put it down, if, if, uh, if, if it jumps off the page, uh, they're all visceral reactions. Yeah. It's, it, I react viscerally to all the scripts I've done, uh, made into movies, the, about a dozen or more, have all been, I've always said yes to, except one, uh, because I was viscerally uh, excited about it. There's all these years we're skipping over with, with Jim and the Henson group, but ev- eventually there comes a point where you get your first feature directing gig, you co-direct The Dark Crystal, um, which, I mean, it's amazing to this day, like w- what, last year, the prequel. By the way, I'm just curious, actually, did you see the the Netflix prequel of The Dark Crystal? Did at any point... Yeah, I thought, I thought it was fantastic. I yeah. thought they did a fantastic job, and they were so... You know, they they could have gone in so many directions, but they really trade, stayed very true to the heart of the story while at the same time expanding it. So I, I take my hat off to them. They, they directed it a fantastic job. Yeah, it was it was it was super cool. I mean, it to me it, it again it speaks to the fact that almost everything that you've been a part of continues to live and breathe um, today. Dark Crystal being even the most recent thing. I mean, you look at you know the continuing quest to <laughs> squeeze money out of the Muppets. But um, when you directed The Dark Crystal, did you, did like, what is that experience working? I mean, you were working alongside Jim anyway, so you're co-directing, but does that experience say to you, like communicate to yourself, you come out of it saying, this was great, but now I want to do it on my own. Where, like, where is your head after co-directing a movie like that as to like what's next, like how you're thinking about the progression of directing? Well, I've got to go back a bit then because it, it didn't just, he didn't, Jim, Jim didn't just ask me to direct uh, and I had no experience. What I, you know, when we were, uh, I don't know, 15 years before, I would, we would, we, we, I would be using a lot of hand, hand winding uh, yeah. uh, Bolex cameras to shoot 16 mil film, uh, dozens, you know, thousands of feet of it. Uh, for a project that Jim wanted to do, and then I uh, I did all the editing with the you know the old fashioned hot splicer and the yeah. and and and, and, and uh, the guillotine splicer, and I, and I I worked on original footage, and so you know Jim gave you know supported me and gave me the opportunity to really learn film, and so it, I was doing that for years, and then I at one point gave myself ten years uh, to become a director, yeah, and. Uh, because I, I I don't believe in easy answers. I believe you have to really uh, work at something and and get seasoned as you do it. So it was just Jim asking me uh, that caused me to be a director before the ten years. Yeah. Uh, so so where in the ten years are you when Dark Crystal happens? 
I'd say about five or six years in. Okay. And so do yeah. you, you, you're, you know, at that time, I'm sure you have your managers and your agents. Um, and knowing, you know, traditionally in Hollywood, it's, you know, people get pigeonholed. They, this is what you do. It's, you know, you get placated in some scenarios of, you know, management agents saying, okay, I know you want to do this. It's kind of off the beaten path. Do you have support from that, from your, the people that are helping you bringing scripts to you um, for this next chapter of, you know, Little Shop of Horror is still was kind of in, in a similar genre and space. You had this amazing, you know, Audrey to uh, puppet going on there as well. But as you're moving past Little Shop, what is that conversation? Is it easy? Are your are your supporters there to execute that for you? Yeah, the uh, actually, I did not have a manager or an agent or any representation in any way oh, until wow. Little Villa. Till when? So I was on my I was on my own, but I'm not really because I was under the umbrella of Jim, and you know I trusted Jim, and so. I, did, I felt I didn't need one, but then I got into the real world, right. which I wanted I wanted to do get in the world, real world. I want to get out in the marketplace. Then my lawyer, uh, Joel Bear, who was also my friend of 30 years, got it. Uh, who really takes care of me, uh, suggested uh, uh, I meet the agents from CAA. So I've been with CAA for about 30 years right now. Wow. Um, not with the same agent, but I have an agent now for the past 10 years who I love. So those are the two people, my, my fr- both my friends, um, my CA agent Craig Gehring and my lawyer Joel Bear, who and my brother also is is very much supportive of me. So I, I do have a good support uh, system there right now. Uh, after Little Shop, I did yeah. yeah. Once I started getting people, I have no manager at all. I've only well, that's I have good. No Save the ten percent. <laughs> I had, no, I have no publicist. I, I would pay publicists to keep me out of the paper. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I have no publicist, no manager. I only have the agent and my my lawyer, both of my friends. So let's talk Little Shop of Horrors. I'm, I mentioned this to you before. I mean, I've been a fan of this this show for a long, long time. I even, you know, was in a, a tiny little production <laughs> of it at a at a Jewish summer camp. But that's beside the point and not important. But for you, so do, do you have a relationship with David Geffen who brings it to you? How does where does this come from? How does this? What's the origin story of Little Shop? After and by the way, when you say directed Dark, Dark Crystal, I helped Jim direct his movie. It yeah. wasn't my movie. It was his vision. Yes. But Jim and I were so close that he knew that I had strengths that he didn't have. Right. And he knew that I could uh, shore up those things that he wasn't as good at. But Smart. nevertheless, and we worked, you know, and it was even though we loved each other and we were so close because I had not done it before. And because I uh, I was still affected by low self-esteem, even then it took a long, long time. Yeah. I think, you know, Jim was very patient with me, uh, yeah. as he always was. Uh, but I had some internal conflicts at that time, uh, too, like m- many of us do at that age. Uh, but what happened with that, after that was Mumpastick Manhattan. Uh, right, that's Jim, right. I, I did a rewrite on that and, and directed that. Jim asked me to do that. And then because of that, Geffen saw Mumpastick Manhattan, and that's why he called me. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, or I met him, uh, and... Uh, he asked me to see the show and I thought it was brilliant. And then I met Howard Ashman and, uh, and I was in London at that time. Uh, I had just gone to LA for something else. And, uh, it, the script wasn't ready. As a matter of fact, I think the script was first tried by 
Scorsese or Landis, whatever it was, but oh, wow. it, it never was. It was. It was never in a form that that it was successfully translated from theater to film. Yes. And I, I felt that, and they knew that. So I spent about a month doing a rewrite in London, um, not rewriting the dialogue or the music. Uh, I wouldn't touch that. That's sacred. Yeah. But uh, I, I essentially I gave it a three hundred and sixty degree. Uh, angle as opposed to in 180 because right. you know you saw that theater piece in a 180 degrees a proscenium film is 360 degrees right and so and also uh i i had to make it as such that it was just a film sensibility and not a theater sensibility right. however i couldn't go realistic either in any case uh geffen called me uh, i met with him i uh, did the rewrite I knew it was good. Unfortunately, I knew they like it. The reason <laughs> I say it, fortunately, is because when you say as a director, yes, yeah, just yes, means you have two years that's not yours. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, and that was about a year, of, uh, almost a year of prep on that. And so it came from Upstate Manhattan. And then, uh, um, actually, I remember that when I said I, I'll, I'll give it a shot of rewriting. I, he asked me, uh, David asked me to ask uh, Howard and I, I called Howard and I said, you want to work with this on me? And he said, no, <laughs> <laughs> because I knew what he was thinking. He's like, listen, Frank, if Landis and Scorsese can't do it, what the hell am I worried about this fucking doll wiggler for? I'm not going to, I'm not going to work with him up here. So he had no faith in me whatsoever. Right. Uh, that that, until that helps the ego for sure. Until I rewrote it, and right. then they were very happy with it, and that was then we said yes. They said yes, so we went ahead. It's it's so interesting. I, I rewatched it recently. How to your point, it exists in this time and place that you can't put your you don't know like when where this exists. It's kind of it's kind of it was a, a I mean look that's the the musical as well, but it's it's kind of a it makes it. Um, it doesn't date it at the end of the day. It doesn't feel like a movie that took place in the fifties, despite the fact that some of the music has sty stylistic and, and genre elements to it, but it exists in a, its own time and place, which is kind of fun and keeps it from feeling old. Well, that's what I try to do. With most of my movies. I mean, uh, dirt run scoundrels. What about Bob? Bowfinger, uh, Stephen, the score, you know, on purpose, I make sure that I don't see any signs or hear any radio or television that speaks of that particular time. Yeah. Because when you when you make something of a particular time, it's not out until many, many months later, and that time is not relevant anymore. Well, and uh, I think that must be why so many of the movies you've directed are continue to be films you hear people talk, oh, oh my gosh, what about Bob? Have you seen this? Like, they continue to have a new life. And what's funny is, I mean, I, I have two young daughters, and my my thing is especially during the the pandemic is sh introducing them to all these movies that i grew up with and it's funny to see what movies to them feel dated versus mm -hmm. like some where they say oh my gosh like that when did that come out was did that come out last year did that you know we just showed them bowfinger a little while ago and it, there was no there was no dated element to it and it it just allows for these films to have a long long life which is great um on I think little it does yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It, was, it was more than just avoiding, you know, when I did all these films that I was more than just avoiding seeing uh, those parts of the world that, that, that 
noted the time and place. I mean, the place, obviously, it was Hollywood and south of France, but the time, it was important, not just because it, uh, it avoided that sense of time. It was important because as a result, there was nothing else to get in the way of universal emotions because that's what the movies have to deal with. Yeah. So on Little Shop, do you know Steve Martin before you do Little Shop? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wasn't friends with him like I, I am now because, uh, or after that, because um, it was after Little Shop that we did the other three movies. Right. But he was, we did the Muppet movie and Steve was in, he was in a wonderful scene playing a waiter in the Muppet movie. And then he, he came as a, a guest star to London on the Muppet show. So yeah. I knew him in a friendly way, but not as a, as a friend. And so, so yeah. So when it's funny, like when you look at kind of all of all, you know, this time in your life, there are kind of these key, key folks who are like punctuate certain, certain chapters. So Steve Martin is one that pops out to your point. It's little shop. It's dirty rotten scoundrels. It's house sitter. It's Bowfinger. Bowfinger being the only one I think that he wrote. Is that right? Yes. And, and so, yeah, go ahead. That's why I think it was so good. His writings are new, extraordinary. I mean, it's amazing. And so on the, on, across those movies, um, we'll put Bowfinger to the side for a second because he wrote it. And you're, you're right. He's what an amazing writer. Um, when you come into these projects as a director, there's a script Everybody, I mean, it's pretty, unless a, a script is perfect, which, you know, like they always say, a script is never done. It's just abandoned. Um, mm-hmm. What level of the director's pass are are you doing on these kind of movies? Is it, are you working with the writer and kind of giving them your, your notes and are your notes more focused on craft, um, character? Like how, how much do you dig into that over these years across these films? I, I dig into it ex- deeply, yeah. um, uh, and my my guiding light on 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 something is if something doesn't feel honest to the world in which those characters inhabit, that says okay, wait, we got to talk about that. Um, there's not a movie I've made of all my movies, none of them, uh, where I haven't. Uh, actually, there's one, but um, the other movies I, I I always ran through the typewriter myself. I had to, uh, yeah. partly because in the comedies, uh, people tend to want to push comedy. And I always, in all the comedies I've done, I've had to ground the comedy more uh, yeah. and not make it as uh, as broad. So I had to do that with the comedies mostly. And then I'm pretty good at structure. So I would, you know, with Steve, for instance, his his stuff is brilliant, but also I would kind of put it through a typewriter, not creatively, but I would be with Steve, I would... I would just like be, take a dustpan and a broom and brush behind him because he would, <laughs> he, he would, he would, you know, he would see it so brilliantly. But as a director, I have to see things in the script that I know tell people in the crew what their job is going to be. And the writer shouldn't have to worry about that. So I have to go through a script to make sure that those things make sense. Night, day, uh, time, uh, locations, you know, uh, and, and so I kind of sweep up after, after Stephen do the, but he does the brilliant part with the other stuff. Uh, I've always, I've always, yeah, I've always worked uh, with a writer on the script. I've never accepted a script as it was, yeah. um, but I've never done it without the writer uh, ever. It's always with the writer and I've never told a writer what to do ever. 
I don't think that's right. I think not that it's right. It's just that you can't write, in my opinion, uh, something uh, that comes from your heart and your soul if some if you're doing it for somebody else. So is your so, is is your approach of giving notes or thoughts more of like this is I'm bumping on this. See, this is the feeling that I'm getting or the feeling I'm not getting. I leave it to you to kind of solve solve for that. No, I won't leave it to them. I'll discuss it with them. Yeah. And I'll say, look, um, you know, you got to write what you believe is best. But here's my feeling about it. Uh, I think structurally here, this is what's going on, I believe. I think the, the main question I always ask uh, is, what is your intent in the scene? I believe every scene has to have an intent yeah. that accumulatively ends up uh, as the arc of a movie. Um, so the biggest question I ask people is, what is the intent of this scene? And as I said before, the, the, the thing that always stops me, and I always talk about, if there's one moment that I don't believe, I zero in on that and, and, and get to the heart of why, and, and I'm very, very detailed, and I, uh, I, I expect a lot of the writer to, to, to be true, not to our world, but to be absolutely true to the world that has been created. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you, are you cool with the writers being on set? Do you lean on them once you start I, shooting? I, there's not been a movie. I haven't had a writer on set. I've asked every time I always ask the writer to please be on set. So, we, so when you do Bowfinger um, with Steve is it, how, how open is he? I mean, clearly, like as you say, as a director, you're going through, you know, structurally kind of like you know fit and finish but is he you guys have a relationship is he open to that kind of creative discussion oh god yeah i mean first of all you know i'm uh, i think because of little shop and then uh good rotten scoundrels you know i think that process showed him how i work and as a result i'm blessed that steve just trusts me yeah you know steve yeah. will come up and give me a suggestion and I'll say, hey, yeah, let's do that. And I'll say, no, I don't know, it doesn't really work for me. And he'll say, okay. So I'm blessed that he trusts me. Um, that's number one. Um, I, I think, you know, with Steve, uh, it, it's in Bowfinger, you know, what would happen is, and this happened to all, actually in the other movies with him too, but we'd probably meet in the trailer in the morning and make up and he'd say, hey, Frank, I got this idea. And it was not for him, it was for somebody else, oh, for the movie to make it better. So it was always open. And he would, you know, I, I had different ideas than him. And he, for instance, in the Bullfinger, and the, at the very end where the FedEx truck comes <laughs> and uh, it was in slow motion, and that was never written in slow motion. And he questioned me on it and said, well, I don't understand this slow motion, Frank. And I said, it, trust me, Steve, it's, 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 it's the right thing to do. It's going to make it more impactful. And he just trusted me, yeah. you know? Uh, so even when I change things in his script with his permission, uh, he's he's totally open to all that stuff. Ch Chubby as long, Rain. As long as he believes it can make the, the script better and as long as he believes me, which he yeah. has been. Does um, in, in situations where you're meeting cast for the first time um, that you don't have the long, you know, long relationship like you have with Steve, what what do you think Pete, what do you think talent and just the heads of departments who have never worked with you before how do they how do they describe the experience of working with you are you a tough director are you um like what how how do people describe you as a director 
You'd have to ask them. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I'll be damned if I know. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think uh, I'll use Steve's, he was, he was asked in an interview to describe me. And I think it's a really great description. And I think as a director, that's what I am, uh, is he said, I was precise and playful. Okay. That's good. And I think those, that's probably the, you know, he has a way of getting to the truth. Those, that is really how I direct. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm completely and totally prepared. And then I play on the set with them. And if it changes, it changes. It's a, it's such an, it's such a re compulsively rewatchable film, Bowfinger specifically. And it still works today. I mean, again, I mentioned my daughters who are all about TikTok and YouTube and people filming their own stuff. And, the concept of you know <laughs> not being able to get the, the actor you need and and filming around him in the real the real world is just such a genius well, I think, concept. I think at the heart of it, I, I hope I believe anyway, and I think kids get it too, is that these are <laughs> these people truly these four people truly love movies. Yeah, and and what they want more than anything else is to be in the movies even though they're misfits, they just want to be in the movies. And the only thing that's holding them back is that complete and total lack of talent. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, it, it think, doesn't stop a lot of people. I, I mean, that's for and sure. I, I think that that, that resonates to, to, to people. If it doesn't resonate, it certainly makes them sympathetic to those people who keep struggling, even though they'll never make it. I mean, it, I mean it's interesting when you, you, know, you go back to what you said about your own questions of self-worth and and ego and confidence and you look at a lot of the characters whether it's you know Seymour and Little Shop of Horrors or it's it's Bowfinger and Bowfinger um even you know even Murray and what about Bob these are these are people who are not necessarily comfortable in their own skin they don't feel like they've accomplished what they feel like they should accomplish and and you know there is to your point even in Bowfinger there is a I mean listen, from an audience perspective everybody aspires to something that they they aren't currently achieving and to see people get there especially in you know using humor to tell that tale i think really connects well i think yeah i think um you know i mean i'll bring it in to the muppets too Fozzie is 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 the same way i'm all my characters in the muppets and yoda and all my movie characters they have one thing in common is that they're all struggling yeah and that is a very very connective piece because i'm struggling you're struggling on yeah. various things whatever it is yeah we all struggle to some degree some some have grown older and they struggle less but there's other things to struggle with when you're older so i think that's the key thing that all those people do and the people who don't struggle who are kind of on top i have no interest in right yeah for sure it's boring it's boring um so i have a i have a question so when i look at you look at all of the films that you directed over those multiple decades. If I'm if I'm I'm playing the you know which one does not belong uh, game, the, the and not does it not belong, but kind of feels like it's of a different director's um, you know credit list. It's the score and and the one thing I want to say, I thought the movie was a, a fun movie, a really really watchable film. I remember before 2001 when you did this film, I was working in distribution at New Line Cinema, and we did both. The Island of Dr. Moreau with Brando and American History X with Ed Norton. And I'm not kidding, on a daily basis, the reports that would come from set about both of these guys being absolutely crazy and causing chaos never stopped. I mean, Brando even more than Norton. Norton's just, 
again, this is my experience, a tough, a tough guy to, to work with. Uh, Brando is, was insane in, in 1996 when he did that movie. So five years later, here you are working with these guys and De Niro, do you, are you worried? <laughs> There's, you know, the stories. So when you're going into this and you're casting it, great names, but do you worry about how am I going to control all of these big personalities? No. Um, just as an aside, as far as the one movie that doesn't, that sticks out to me is uh, Stepford Wives. That's, that's the only movie that I didn't follow my instincts and I believe was a, a failure. Yeah. Uh, because I didn't follow my instincts. It's the yeah. only one. So I feel that one really sticks out. The score sticks out in other people because they don't, when you're, when you've done comedy, yeah, uh, people think that's all you can do, right? Uh, like if you do puppetry, that's all you can do. And right. Paul, uh, you're an interviewer, right? Here, that's all you can do is interview. You can't do anything else, right? Right. So that means that people really don't know the heart of us. Of us, we don't know. They don't know what's inside of us. And for me, the scores and and other things have always been inside of me. It's just people haven't seen that. Right. So for me, it's not odd man out. It just happens to be. As a matter of fact, I said to my agent, I said, look, I, I can't, I'm not going to accept any comedies until I get a drama. I, I, I'm not going to be a one trick pony. Yeah. You know, and uh, this was not the script was not by any means where it should have been. Uh, that script changed every single day uh, in the shooting. Uh, and it was uh, a tough shoot, uh, but uh, exciting. Um, and, uh, y- y- you know, I, I felt uh I felt great about doing it because it was very much part of who I, who I am. And one of the things of who I am, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I think so, but as far as uh, Marlon and, uh, and Edward and, and Bob goes, um, you know, um, well, Marlon, Edward and well, Bob is a, a, a dream. Yeah. Uh, and Edward is, is so good. He's such a good actor and he's For very sure. smart. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Marlon I was very aware of Dr. Moreau. I was very aware of what he did to the director. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I said to my, and this is a big mistake I made. I tell everybody, I said to myself, uh, I will not let Marlon take over my picture period. Right. I would not let him do it. So I started off tough and, uh, n- not mean, but I wasn't going to kowtow to him. Right. Uh, and so as a result, that caused some friction. And uh, for the first day and a half, I was too tough on him. And uh, I realized, oh, shit, I really fucked up here. I, <laughs> I, I should have been, you know, a director's job is to nurture the actor and get the best job out of him. And I was taking things personally from Marlon because he was not nice to me. Yeah. Uh, but I should have let that roll off my back because that's my, my job is to help them. And he was scared. I didn't realize that at the time, but that's what he was. Right. So, uh, you know, it really was my fault. Uh, whatever happened with Marlon was my fault because I didn't do my job right in the first day and a half. And after that day and a half of conflict, it was too late to make up. So we had the next, you know, two and a half weeks uh, having a very difficult time. But it was not Marlon's fault. It was it was my fault as a director. Yeah. Well, it's still, I mean, listen, it's a, it is, it's a fun movie. And it's, I mean, I, again... Norton is amazing, just much like how he was in Primal Fear. Like for him, you know, playing playing against type, playing these, you know, pretending to be, you know, certain characters with certain, you know, deficiencies. He's he's brilliant. What's that? 
He's brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Part of the what happened with Marlon was, you know, I've I've I went to his home. Uh, I had about a two-hour meeting with him many many months before, and he mentioned um, he thought the character could be gay, and I said, well, you know, I just did a movie uh, 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 with Kevin Klein, Tom Selleck, about homosexuality and and the and being uh, being human, which is more important than anything else. And I said, I'm concerned about it. He said, no, no, it's gonna be very, very subtle, very subtle. (laughs) So I said, okay, great. Unfortunately, six months later, he came in and he he appeared and and we rehearsed the scene and basically he was as wild as Truman Capote. Uh And my editor said, how can we use this? I said, I can't, we can't use this. And so because I would not allow him to do that character, that caused the immediate conflict. And the sad part is because I didn't handle it well, I know that Marlon truly felt that character was correct. He truly felt that was the best, the best character. However, I believe also Marlon, uh, as most, most big stars do, they, they have pressure on themselves to, to make themselves uh, what people expect of them, and uh, he 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 needed to just relax and be the character, as opposed to as opposed to be uh, larger than life, uh, because that's what people expect of him. And he also thought of that in part because he he thought it'd be more entertaining, I suppose. But in any case, that was where the real problem. I wouldn't I wouldn't allow him to uh, do that character, yeah, because it was not right for the movie. Yeah, I, well, I <laughs> and I would agree. It sounds like that was the right call. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I did it badly, you know? Yeah. So what was it about Stepford? What was your instinct that you didn't follow on Stepford Wives? Well, I had always seen Stepford Wives as a, a very small movie about relationships between the men and the women and yeah. the women and the women and the men and the men. Right. I thought that was fascinating uh, in kind of a post-feminist uh, era uh, because the the women's lib movement was has not been, has started, started in the 70s, but it still hasn't been uh, completed. <laughs> we're still in the mess of it. Yeah, for sure. So I still think it's at that time. I we were still in the mess of it. So I felt this was a really great way to have to explore it with kind of Paul's this funny, wonderful writing, yeah. and having it uh, a bit over the top uh, and make it funny, like I did with homosexuality. You made that funny; it's more acceptable. Right, but. Um, so I wanted a smaller movie and, uh, you know, Scott Rudin, God love him. I've done two movies with him now, but he, uh, he felt it needed to be larger. For instance, the, uh, the big mansions they lived in, I said, no, he, he said that that's going to be great to have them in the mansions because, uh, people will uh, laugh at that. And I said, no, they won't. They'll say, geez, I wish I had that home. Right. And, 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 and we had a, a fight about that. And Scott is brilliant. And yeah. he's, I, I love him. He's just great. But I felt he was wrong. And then on top, that, that idea of getting larger came from the casting. Because in the beginning, I had Nick, but none of the others, Nicole Kidman. And then the others came in. And it was mainly Scott who built up the casting. And then I had these huge stars. Yeah, big, big cast. And, yeah. So when you have these huge stars, what happens is it exponentially makes the crew larger because each star understandably has to have the own his own makeup person right that star has to have its own his own driver her own driver that star and has to have uh, uh, an assistant that's right you know they all have to have their own things and they're stars they deserve it right but it made it larger and 
the idea, maybe Scott thought, well, if it's going to be this large and we're going to cost more money, we can't make it an intimate film. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that was his thinking. I don't know. But I still wanted that intimate film. But as it got larger and larger and larger, I got uncomfortable. And again, it's my fault because what I should have done is say, no, I'm not going to do this this way. But by that time in the process, there's two things that were happening. One was I started hiring people production designers, et cetera. And I knew if I stopped the movie, they would be out of their jobs. Right. I shouldn't have cared about that. I should have just gone for what my feeling was. The real problem with Stepford Wives, and Paul is a great writer, a yeah. great writer. And Scott's a great producer and he has incredible taste. But the problem here was, I think uh, maybe our hubris, but certainly my hubris, was we, we had a hit in, um, in, in and out. And uh, I think we felt pretty good that we worked well together. And Paul had an idea uh, that came from Scott, actually, about, uh, no, that wasn't, no, that was in and out. And Paul, uh, someone had an idea, Paul or Scott, about redoing Stepford Wives uh, as a comedy, and, 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 which is a way to uh, connect with people. But the script wasn't written. It's the very first time I've ever said yes to a script that wasn't written. Oh, wow. It, that, that was the real problem. Uh, and we had a couple of dozen writers meetings, me and my assistant Leslie, or associate Leslie and Paul and, and Scott. And, you know, we'd be sh I would be shouting at times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, we all tried very hard and we all had our own viewpoint. And it, it, it it was always uh, the third act was the problem and it never went away. And my, it was, it was my, again, my, my fault. I believe strongly that if directors get the credit, they should take the blame. And it was my fault for, uh, for really going forward uh, without a script. But I think I was heuristic at that point since I'd done a good job before. You know, it's, it's, I always say this to folks cause I always, th I, I think it's so true is that, I mean, again, you're, you know, as the director, you are, you are the captain of the ship, but at the end of the day, so much has to go right for a movie to be just good. Like mm -hmm. it's, it, you can have an amazing script and you can hire the wrong a actors. The editing oh, yeah. can be off. The music score can be wrong. I mean, it is, it's amazing. Anything's good. So it's, you know, even, even on that movie, it's still, it's still a watchable movie. I, I, I still get a kick out of even the opening with all of those fake shows that Nicole Kidman is pitching. Um, yeah, those are fun. With Mike uh, White and everybody. The heart and soul that wasn't what I wanted it to be. That's the thing. And I'm not blaming Scott or Paul because they truly felt they were going in the direction they wanted. And actually, probably I had them compromised because I didn't want them to go in that direction. So they never had an opportunity to really go in the direction they wanted. But at the end of the day, um, it, it was, uh, you know, I... I we should have had a blueprint and yeah. we didn't. So with respect to there, there have now been moments over the years where you, you take on a role where you're in front of the camera, you're doing, you know, VO like things in inside out, but like, so I see you pop up in knives out um, as the probate lawyer. Like where do those things come from? Is that through, you know, colleagues and friends who say, Hey, I have a movie. I'd love for you to be in it. Or are people actually, you know, reaching out from a casting perspective? No casting perspective. Who the fuck would cast me? No. <laughs> uh, uh, no, it was friends. I mean, Landis, the whole thing happened was, you know, 
I'm convinced Landis said, hey, we need a prick. Hey, let's get Frank Oz. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, because John asked me, he was a fan of uh, Grover and the Muppets. And so I've known him for 40 years. And so I, he, he asked me every time. And then, um, you know, uh, I did a little independent film recently be out and I, uh, as a uh, as a bad guy which i loved and that was a small part but that was because my son's roommate of many years i've known him for a long time is an independent filmmaker and he asked me to do it yeah and uh and then uh, knives out was only because ryan the director and ron the producer we had so much fun and you know we we loved working together in uh the last jedi and we just wanted to play together that's all and so Actually, when he asked me, I, I said, are you, are you out of your fucking mind? I said, you know, uh, I'm not going to ruin your movie. And he really wanted me. I said, OK, as long as you get enough coverage, <laughs> as long as you can cut away from me, I'll do it. <laughs> That's funny. But no, the real reason I do it yeah. is not because of acting. It's because it's important. And I believe every director should do it. It's important for the director get, to get in front of camera to see and experience how frightening it is to be an actor. <laughs> and I think that that actually helps me as a director, knowing the feeling they're having in front of camera. Yeah. So I have one question about a project that didn't go that I want to talk about Touch of Evil. Um, is this true that you and Martin Short were trying to do Curious Case of Benjamin Button? We weren't trying to do it. We were offered it by, uh, who was it, Universal at that time? Hmm. I forgot. But, uh, they asked me and Marty, and for some reason, they must have seen a comedy. I don't know, but I thought it was odd. I read the story. And I thought it was wonderful. Um, and we met in the office at Universal, and Robin Zweikort, who's a wonderful writer, started writing it. And um, it really, uh, I, I, she did a wonderful opening, great opening. But I think for some reason, she wasn't crazy about me, which is fine. Yeah. Uh, maybe my 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 sensibility didn't, didn't match her sensibility. Uh, but that was, that was, that was okay. We, we kept on working and, uh, but what really happened was that if you remember Ray Stark at all, yeah, of course, Ray Stark was a very big time, uh, producer. So I was right in the middle of, uh, developing that. Uh, and, uh, I got a, I got a call from my agent saying that, uh, uh, Ray Stark is involved now and he's taking it away from you and taking it to Spielberg. <laughs> so I said, what the fuck? Right. And I give me his number. So I called him. I said, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Uh, and uh, he was, you know, he was just a producer politically sidestepping things and said, well, I'll, I'll, we'll get some work for you later. I said, I don't care. Right, right. So essentially uh, he just took over and uh, it wound up as a really good movie. I thought they did a terrific job, but it shows how a movie will, struggle in the beginning and then it'll go underground and 20 years later it'll be made those are two totally different versions of that movie yeah exactly i don't know it was really odd to ask us but uh, i don't know and and so before i ask you to talk about touch of evil so where are you at today like are you things in development are there certain stories that you want to tell that you're trying to make happen where, where are you at today with respect to that well, it depends. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to anymore do a two year movie. Uh, you yeah. know, that's why I did death at a funeral in part because after, um, after doing, um, uh, Stepford wives, which is, you know, a huge budget, a hundred million dollars or so. And, 
there was no reason for it to be that, but nevertheless, it was because of yeah. the stars and such. And I love working with them. Yeah. Um, I felt I needed. I felt I needed something. You know, go, I want to go back to movie making. Yeah. And it's like you're having a huge dinner, and you need some sorbet afterwards to clean your palate. <laughs> right. That's how I felt with Death at a Funeral. And it, it came to me, and, it, and again, you know, Dean wrote it, it was wonderful, made me laugh out loud, but I had to work with him to ground it because it was too broad. But I, I had a, you know, that was, we had a wonderful time with uh, Death at a Funeral. But I, I just want to do things that I can have fun with and, and, and that I can, or if I feel serious about that, I can really dig in. But that don't shoot for two years, it shoot for, you know, nine months. I mean, not shoot, but prep and shoot in uh, post for nine months or so. So it's um, more sorbet and less buffet. Yeah, filmmaking. Yes. Uh, without necessarily CGI and such, but just yeah. filmmaking, which is one of the joys of Death at a Funeral with all the wonderful cast. I did direct an off-Broadway play with a, a one-man show with uh, Derek Delgaudio, and uh, that went on for about a year and a half as a hit. And so uh, Derek and I uh, uh, worked on that, and so that'll be that'll be in, out on Hulu and... Uh, uh, in January. And that's in and of itself, correct? That's a, that's a movie movie version of uh, what we did, yeah. That's great. So I was saying, you know, when we first talked and I, I said, do you have any idea of what film you would want to do a feature-length commentary for? Without pause, you said Touch of Evil. Um, yep. And so I would love to know, from your perspective, when did you first see it? What, what is it about the film that's so impactful for you? And also... Very curious because there's three versions of the film, including the Walter Murch 98 re-edited version based on Orson Welles' like 60-page document of notes. Which version did you see first? Were you as did it impact you as much as the 98 version? Talk to us about that. I don't remember. I don't remember <laughs> which one I saw first. Yeah, certainly. Uh, the one, of course, I settled with, and the one I talked about was the Walters version. Yes. Um, I. I guess what I was struck with, I mean, Citizen Kane, and I know I'm not original here, but I do believe Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane is the best movie ever made. Yeah. Uh, and it was incredible. But this was a different, Orson went a different way here. He, he knew he couldn't spend a huge budget because the studios were not friendly with him and they were not friendly at all during the shoot. Uh, he knew he had to, in a way, prove himself. Uh, and he knew... Uh, that he had to be good but economical and his choices were well first of all the makeup on him and his own acting was stunning yeah but the the, the choices if is i the number one thing about that movie besides the extraordinary dark and light values which is just stunning the contrasts um was that it had such little coverage uh and that's what i i talked about that as when i narrated it but that's what gave it the style and that would that's what gives everybody style every project style you know students are taught to get coverage and i think that's just too safe and it uh suffocates a style and if you notice there's very little coverage there and that created that whole style and that that was the powerful part to me and do you do you when you're directing your own films do you think back to movies like touch of evil or others where there are kind of iconic moments and you say to yourself, man, I would love to try to execute something that feels like that here. Um, yeah. You know, does his, his three minute, 20 second single, you know, without any cuts, that single shot in the opening, do you see that and say to yourself, I want to either try to do something like that or something 
uh, that breaks the rules in that way for myself? Yeah, uh, not that shot because everybody's done that shot. Sure. Now. Uh, uh, but uh, but other things in that movie that he did were, were extraordinary. But I can't uh, unless it feels right. I'm a slave to the story. That's yes. you know we're all slaves to the story, and you know I tend to use the form to mirror the spirit of what's written. So when I did the little shop of horrors, I did a lot of big camera moves and a lot of stuff because that mirrored the mirrored the energy of that of that project. Um, if I do the score, I can't do that. I've got to be true to that. And there was pretty much a craftsman-like job on purpose. I, and if I start saying, oh, I love that Orson Welles thing, let me do that, then that's just showing off, you know? It's gotta be, it, I, it's got to be in the spirit uh, and mirror the style of the writing. Uh, and I can't just all of a sudden show off there, you know? Yeah. Well, listen, I, I appreciate, A, you taking the time to sit down and, and talk through so much of of your career today and you taking the time to record the full-length commentary for touch of evil i think it's it's interesting timing especially with mank coming out i think in december um, what's that i don't know what that is that's the fincher fincher movie about mankowitz who wrote citizen kane that um oh, great oh fantastic i didn't know that yeah it's his father wrote it um who's yeah. no longer with us and they say it's an amazing script and it's shot it looks like a movie out of the 30s it's People are saying it's amazing and it comes out on Netflix December 5th. So it's just funny that like here we are focusing on this, you focusing on this movie and in a few weeks, um, there's been a lot of articles written just about that style of film and Orson Welles. So you picked it without even knowing. I'm excited for people that haven't taken the time to watch it, to watch it and listen to your your commentary. Frank, listen, I appreciate it so much that you took the time to do this and um, really, really recommend for folks who are not familiar with some of the, the great films over the last set of decades that you've directed to check them out because they are perennial favorites. They are films that to, to our discussion don't feel dated. They, they feel very now. And uh, it's a testament to, to your point to focus on story and character and craft. And I, I want to thank you for taking the time. Well, thanks. That was, that was nice. I hope, uh, I hope people don't fall asleep when they hear this. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. And so there you have it. Mr. Frank Oz. Man who goes by many names, many characters, but ultimately, slave to the story, as he says. I want to thank him for his time, and uh, now it's your turn to watch Touch of Evil. So here's what you need to know about Touch of Evil. You can download it on many services, but the film that you're going to download is not the 1998 re-edited version. That is available on Blu-ray and DVD. So if you truly want to watch it in lockstep with Frank Oz's commentary, it's the Walter Murch 1998 re-edited version based on Orson Welles' 58-page notes document. Otherwise, um, plug in and, and watch the 1958 version and just know that some moments will be slightly different, but it's uh, worth a listen, and it's available as a standalone commentary here on our podcast page. Um, thank you guys for joining. We'll be back next week with yet another interview and commentary on the sidetrack.